there was a research study published today that found out that eating vegetables increases your risk of cancer. That would be a headline study in every news bulletin around the world. You don't get headlines showing, once again, scientists show that eating vegetables is good for you. That doesn't get any clicks. You need to have conflicting research. You need a controversy and change to get interest from the public. And that's where some of the confusion comes from. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian, Steph Gaskell. How are things with you, Steph? I am good, Alan. I am pumped and I'm wanting to get some more participants for my study. So, um yeah, as, as you know, we've been allowed back in, in the lab at Monash Uni uh, and I have my final study running for my PhD uh, and I am looking for some participants um, who'd like to spend a bit of time with, with us in the lab. Um, basically, the study's looking at um, gut function and, and running. So we, we want to have a look at, you know, the longer that we run, um, how, how well is our gut functioning, um, you know, is it slowing down and how much is it slowing down? Um, and so we're looking for runners from recreational to, to high level. Um, and I guess the, the main requisites, prerequisites for them is that there's no, um, gastrointestinal condition, um, and they're able to run for up to three hours um, at once on a treadmill. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if they are interested, we've got some, some further information on our um, social media pages. Uh, also, there's, there's Monash University. Um, and if they, if they are interested, just reach out to me and I would love to have you. I need 16 participants and... Uh, we're aiming for eight, eight males, eight females, um, and it's contributing, you know, to, to understanding more in the area of, of nutrition for endurance. Mm. And you get a whole lot of data from it you, as well. You get your, your VO2 yeah. max test. You get a whole bunch of data about how much carbohydrate versus fat you use during exercise. Um, get to spend of, time of, with us, Alan. Yeah, yeah, well, probably not so much me for this study, but yep. definitely your good self and, yep. and anyone else is helping you out in the lab. Yeah. Um, do they get to watch anything? Get any TV shows or yeah, movies? Yeah, they'll get some TV shows, some movies, and, you know, we've got a, a really cool new machine. Um, so we're using what's called an EGG machine, which is an electrogastrography machine. So I guess kind of works like an ECG machine, which people will be more familiar with, measuring... ECG obviously measures electrical activity of your heart. The EGG measures the electrical activity of your gut. Um, so, so we'll be using that completely non-invasive, no harm. Um, it's basically just some electrodes on, on your stomach um, and, and looking at what's happening um, with, your, with your gut. Um, so they'll get to find out how their gut functions as well um, with running. So that's kind of a unique experience too. So it's an EGG, but it's not an egg. No, it's not an egg. We can call no. it an egg. Well, we'll call I'll, it that. I'll give we'll, them an egg. Yeah, yeah. We can. They can eat an egg, and then we can give them an egg to see what's happened to it <laughs> once it hits the stomach. Yeah. Exactly. All right. 
Cool. Well, nothing like a shameless plug, yep. uh, but we will post the uh, the recruitment poster for that through our social media channels as well. So if anyone wants to get involved in the study with Steph, if you're based in Melbourne, then um, yeah, absolutely, we'd we'd love to have you involved, which is which is great, mm. and a great that we can get back and, and doing lab based research again because for a lot of the world they're still not able to do that and you know even for us it's been a, a long time since we've been able to so I think your first your study is one of the first to start up again certainly in our lab at, at Monash which is great. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Awesome. All right. So here on the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into some of the most common nutritional questions that people have uh, in their their running, their cycling, triathlon stuff that people are always talking about and debating and um, we break those questions down and invite either a guest expert in one week or an athlete themselves who have you know, faced or overcome that particular question in, in one way or another. Um, and this week's question, I guess, talking about, you know, most common nutrition questions, this is probably kind of comes to the heart of, you know, why these questions exist in the first mm -hmm. place. And that's, you know, this question of why is nutrition so confusing? Why are these conflicting messages around and so much debate and, um, and angst, I guess, if you like, around nutrition? And so we've got a, a great guest uh, for that. Steph, do you want to tell us who, who our guest is today? Yeah, we've got the lovely Timothy Tim Crow. Um, and yeah, answering the question, why is nutrition so confusing? Yeah, absolutely. So great to have Tim involved. He's, um, he's a dietitian himself. Uh, he is, or was an associate professor at Deakin University and uh, was heavily involved in running the, the course for nutrition, nutritionists and dietitians there at Deakin Uni. Um, and has since moved into more of a, a public facing role in terms of, you know, media and, and consulting and this sort of thing. So we'll have a talk to him about, um, both of, of those aspects. But before we do that, Steph, um, we've had um, some, some interactions uh, online. We've had a, our first uh, Apple podcast rating from Sally. So thank you very much, Sally, for the, the rating. And if anyone else wants to, to put in a rating for the podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or any of the other podcasting platforms that have that functionality, we'd be very happy to, to see that uh, and, and hear some feedback from you, which is fantastic. Uh, and also a big thanks to, to Lionel, who sent through a, a question for us to answer on the podcast. So um, thanks very much for that, Lionel. We're, we're looking into that one and seeing uh, who the, the best guest might be to, to help us answer that question. So we'll we'll have a think about that and, and hopefully put together an episode on, on the topic that you requested um, over the you know the next couple of months, which is which is fantastic as well. So yeah, great to, to see some some interaction happening on social media. And if anyone else has a question that they um, think we should we should cover in an episode. Feel free to hit us up, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you know, we'd love to love to hear from you and, and hear those have those interactions with you. And no silly no question is a silly question as well. So don't be don't be scared to to ask. A absolutely, question. absolutely. And we're going to have I think an episode coming up in the not too distant future, uh, which is really bringing things back to basics in terms of how do I prepare for my first ultra endurance event, whether that's a um, you know an Ironman or an ultra marathon or a you know. 12 or 24 hour mountain bike race, something like that. Um, going right back to, you know, that, that basics of, you know, if I've never done this before, what the, what are the things I need to consider and, and how do I sort of plan it out? So yeah, you, you're right. No, no questions, a silly question. And uh, yeah, we're, we're happy to, happy to have a look at it. So Steph, it is episode 6A today in the podcast. Um, but before we get into our episode, 
you look a bit pent up there. You've got the glass of wine, which tells me that you need to just calm <laughs> things down a touch. I've got a bottle of wine with me, Alan. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, I only saw the glass in shot, but yeah, obviously uh, a bit more than that, which which tells me that you, you're trying to calm down a little bit, Steph. You, you've got something that that's really something grating at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on? <laughs> um, so I guess the, the rant today is just about how the the mess the messages that we can get around you know just general health and nutrition um, often can get confused with then the the messages um, and nutrition for for performance for sports performance um, so I, so an example of this is um, you know athletes being very conscious um, of of eating healthy um, and and that's great you know they wanna they wanna be they want the best for their body and 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 for health um so they think that perhaps all they can have is you know and all they should be having is really whole grain wholesome um foods when you have a individual that has um let's say an endurance athlete and they have a very high energy expenditure um if they are just solely trying to get the energy intake through really whole grain wholesome foods they can find that a, a struggle um, and they may actually find that they don't get enough energy in for what they're outputting, for what they're expending, um, which can put them into a risk um, category for what we call REDS, so relative energy deficiency syndrome. So basically not giving your body enough energy um, for, for just the, for the work that you're doing for the basic um, functioning of the body. Um, so, um, and the other one that, that we can see as well is, um, this, this message about fiber, you know, cause we, we hear often that, okay, Australians aren't eating enough of the daily fiber intake and they should be aiming for at least, you know, 25, 30 grams of, of fiber in a day. Um, and so the same, like, so then what I see, um, athletes or individuals doing, um, is they are then doing the same thing trying to get in lots of nuts, seeds, wholesome, whole grain food. Um, and um, they actually don't even need, a lot of them don't even need to do that um, because their energy intakes for some athletes can be quite reasonable and high. Um, if they just had, you know, um, some lower fiber foods, they'll very easily get the fiber intake. Uh, as an example, I often see runners and um and they can have like, you know, like they can have some white stuff, you know, like white rice. They can have white bread. Um, they don't a have potato. to shove a whole heap. Yep, potato. They don't have to shove a whole heap of nuts and seeds. Uh, and I'll look at their fiber intake and they've got 60 or 70 grams of fiber, not through eating a lot of whole grains, just simply because they're, they're needing to get in that, that volume of food. Um, so I, I, I guess, and what we'll get through with, with today, hopefully with talking to Tim is um, you really need to individualize the message. And yes, it's great to listen to, you know, general health um, advice and, and nutrition messages, but you need to then relate it to yourself. Um, and what, what sport am I doing? And what are actually my requirements? And am I actually just meeting that anyway? Or is that advice actually relevant 
to me specifically or do I fit a different category? And if I'm not sure, um, perhaps then I, it would be beneficial for me to seek the advice of a qualified sports dietitian um, that can help me out with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just concluding that example there, Steph, I guess it's the case of if, if someone's eating um, like high fiber foods, but they eat double the quantity that they need to, they're getting double the fiber that they need to. Mm. Um, so if they go to white bread, white pasta, white rice, all of these sorts of things, the quote unquote unhealthy bad things for you. But if you're eating double the quantity of things mm. with half the fiber content, mm. you're still going to end up getting the same amount of fiber. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. So uh, I guess as dietitians, we sort of think about this in terms of what we call energy density, how many calories per 100 grams of food. Mm -hmm. And the problem is if you go for the super low energy density stuff, that's fine if you don't do a lot of physical activity because you don't need the calories. You need to feel full without eating too many calories. But if you have a massive calorie expenditure, you need the calories and it's going to become physically difficult. Hard, yes. Um, or you end up getting too much of things like the fiber example you gave there, like if you have too much fiber, you know, you can end up actually like malabsorbing other you know, nice. minerals and things because the, the fiber blocks their absorption. Mm. So, um, yeah, you can actually sort of go pear-shaped on well, you. So you're trying to eat. they're about ibs symptoms as well. Oh, yeah. I feel, you know, really bloated. I'm rushing mm. off to the toilet a lot. Um, you yeah. know, why do I just feel like my stomach's so distended? So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's that case of, you know, trying to eat healthy but they're doing it so much, but it's not suited to their mm. needs that they end up actually probably being unhealthier mm. as a consequence. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. I expected you to be more fired up about this, Steph. I thought you were really going to have your blood <laughs> boiling. I expected some some nasty facial expressions. <laughs> I was trying to be helpful and explain and nut it out. It must be the wine. Yeah, it must be the wine. It is calming me. Yep. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Well, well, we'll stay calm. Yep. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll introduce our guest for the day. Awesome. All right, so it's episode 6A today of The Long Munch, and our question is, why is nutrition so confusing? So to help us answer that question, our guest today is Dr. Tim Crow. Now, Tim Crow is a former associate professor of nutrition and dietetics at Deakin University. Uh, he worked there both in a, a teaching and a, a scientific research role for 16 years. Um, as well as that, he's uh, an author and editor of one of the most commonly used nutrition textbooks in the university sector called Understanding Nutrition. Uh, so that's a, a general nutrition textbook, not a, um, a sports-specific one, but yeah, very uh, widely circulated textbook. Um, but in the last few years, he's left the academic field and he's worked as a freelancer, primarily writing on nutrition for health for publications like Choice Magazine, the Australian Healthy Food Guide, uh, and also for Medibank Private, amongst others. But Tim also runs his own blog called Thinking Nutrition and a podcast of the same name where he provides really simple, practical messages around nutrition and health, as well as debunking myths and misconceptions in the field. So really a, a great person to, to talk to about this topic of why nutrition is, is so confusing. Uh, but on top of that, um, Tim's also a key marathon runner himself, and has multiple sub three hour marathons to his name. So really a, a perfect person to get on, both from the, the nutrition communication side of things and, and why that gets muddied a lot, but then also his own experience as an athlete. So yeah, fantastic to have to have Tim on the podcast today. Yeah, awesome, looking forward to it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's pretty good to, to do 
some sub three three hour marathons in there so yeah he's he's great academically and um in the sports arena as well yeah awesome all right well i think without further ado we'll get stuck into our interview today with dr tim crow all right tim crow welcome to the long munch great to have you here how are things oh fantastic good to be almost on the other side of the the crazy 2020 and uh back into normal life i hope so yeah things are going well. absolutely for sure um now Great to have you on because not only are you an expert in the, the topic today, but you're also a runner yourself. And you probably actually don't know this, but I remember about a decade ago, I used to do a job in the city where I had to ride to work. And I used to ride past in one direction. I'd see you every few days running in the opposite direction. <laughs> I did. Head, headphones in, you're in, your, in your own world, and I'm in my own world getting to work and avoiding all the other commuters. So, yeah, I think you're on the other side of the road as well. But, yeah, that was quite a while ago. But I guess you're still still running around the, near the Yarra, around Richmond, Burnley sort of area. Uh, that was one of my favourite places. I'm sort of more north side at the moment. So a lot of laps around Princess Park, Royal Park, Merry Creek. I, I know all the, the, the paths of Melbourne after doing marathon running for so many years. You <laughs> you explore everywhere uh, in, in lots of detail. So, yeah, it's something I enjoy quite a lot. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, we particularly wanted to speak to you, Tim, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, you've been a, a lecturer and academic uh, and, and ran the course at Deakin University for quite a while in nutrition and dietetics. And, and since then, you've, you've moved on to other things um, and now working sort of more in sort of media and, and that side of things. So experiencing, you know, both the sort of the pure science side of things and, and, you know, the communication with the public side of things, which I think bodes really well for our topic about, you know, why is nutrition so confusing? Um, so I might hand over to you, Steph, to, to kick things off with our questions for tonight. Yeah, yep. Um, so, Tim, after, I guess, a, like Alan was saying, a lengthy uni um, career, you now work as a, as a freelancer. Um, so you're communicating health messages to, to the public. Um, can you explain to the listeners what that kind of involves for you? Yeah, so my whole career has been in, I guess, the, the pointy end, the, the, the scientific research side of, of nutrition. But increasingly over my career in academia, I was doing a lot more communication work. And it's something I really love, translating all of all of the complex, messy science into messages that the public can understand, but even health professionals can understand. So mm. uh, I'm, I bit the bull about three years ago and moved out on my own in a, in a freelancing role. So at the moment, I do, I do writing for, for magazines, websites. I do media work, consulting work. Uh, I speak to the public and health professionals a lot, and I do a lot of work on my own social media channels and podcasting as well. So it's lots of everything, but it's stuff that I love. It's all the communication side of nutrition. So I'm in my element, and I was always waiting for this job to come up that I would finally apply for and get to do this all the time. But I had the, the realization that there is no job out there. I need to make my own yeah. job. And then when I realized that, well, freelancing was the, the way to go. So I haven't looked back. Yeah, I get yeah. To, to do what I love every day. So it sounds like it's been pretty successful for you then. Yeah, it's a well, first of all, it's, it's just a great job. I, mm. I, I enjoy what I do every day. I, I love the science. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an absolute card carrying nerd when it comes to scientific research and stats. <laughs> but also, I like saying what this means for the, for, mm. for the practical messages for, for the public, particularly when there's so much confusing and noise in this nutrition sphere, probably more so than many other professions. So I try and do my bit to balance out the crazy, as I say, as a tagline at the end of my podcast each week. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And yeah, so talking about your podcast, so your podcast is called Thinking Nutrition. 
Um, and I, both Alan and I think it provides fantastic summaries of very confusing messages. And just like you said, not only for the public, but actually also for health practitioners, because as you know, we don't all, um, you know, there can be dietitians that have a special interest in particular areas, so they don't work necessarily in, in these other areas. So I actually find myself going to your um, blog if I get asked, you know, a confusing question or something I'm not up with um, and just find your summaries really handy and um, really practical um, for, for who I'm working with. So um, you. if you're able to just tell us a bit about your podcast, sort of how it started um, and, and who it's intended for. Well, um, thank you for those really nice comments, Steph. And that, that's really wonderful to know that it's not only the public I, I pitch it to, but also professionals as well who just want the summary of confusing areas. And you don't always need to use big, long words and talk about every single chemical reaction in glycolysis and the citric acid cycle uh, to explain things. So I try and do it in a way that suits most people. Uh, I launched my podcast in January of last year. And I've been thinking about it for a while, but I knew there's a little bit of a barrier to starting a podcast, as I'm sure you and Alan um, are aware of, that mm -hmm. initial first episode. But I saw some colleagues who were doing podcasting, and they were getting some fantastic reach, because in the end, it's about reach. I want to have some, some influence. If I'm going to do this, I'd like to know there's a good audience. Yeah. So I knew that it was likely worth my while to, to put the time and effort into it, and it's gone fantastically. I get to speak about all the sorts of topics I'm continually asked about that are topical in the media, that's topical in research, to give short, sharp digests and summaries of it every week. And I've stuck to a one episode per week schedule for a year so far. Mm -hmm. And it's done incredibly well. I mean, it's, it's been in the top 10 nutrition podcasts uh, since its launch. It's, it's in the top science podcasts on Spotify. So it's been fantastic. But I don't do that because there's any money in it for me. There's no ads. There's no, no sales, no nothing, no 12-week body transformation program. <laughs> it's purely my way of actually having uh, adding my voice to a lot of confusing areas mm. and really to make things not as complex as what they may seem. And that's why I do it. I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so basically it's for, for everyone really, isn't it? Just about. The language, I think, is, is accessible to anybody. But if you listen to it, you know there is a hell of a lot of science underneath it that I communicate those little messages. And that's what um, I enjoy getting that across and people sensing that it's yep. credible and very evidence-based. And that's what my whole career has been in science research. So it makes sense to stick to that sort of communication strategy. Yeah. Um, and also you're a keen runner yourself, which I've um, found out. Um, so, um, yeah, tell us, I guess, what got you what got you into running have you been a runner since you were you know young kid or did it start when you were you know in the in the lab at uni and you needed to go yeah. de-stress um <laughs> what started it for you I think I always enjoyed running but mainly you know five you know a 5k run you know every couple of weeks and then Know, maybe early 30s I just decided oh, I might run a marathon so I just started training to run a marathon and I got totally addicted to it it was a horrendous event the first one so I thought I need to go back and do that again and uh, 14 15 marathons later I just want to keep going back and doing another one so I certainly got uh, addicted to it because I just enjoy it I like the the aspect that I, I enjoy the training it's actually the training I enjoy not so much the, yeah. the, the race though that's just 
you know, a fairly, fairly uh, you know, a one-off event, but the training is is quite addictive. So I enjoy that, and I found that I've been fairly good at it. And it's a great training field when you uh, obviously I teach, I taught sports nutrition at, at Deakin to actually have the practical side of nutrition, not just the science side. And that's been a, a wonderful because you don't always get that in nutrition. You don't, if unless you've got diabetes, you probably don't know what it's like to the counsel someone with diabetes. And of course, you don't have to have all those conditions. But in sports nutrition, it's nice to be a, a sports person who enjoys what they do and knows all of the individual vagaries that exist around sports nutrition when you apply it to yourself as opposed to what the theory says. And that's yep. not always the same thing. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yep. And, um, have you done any of the big the big marathons overseas? I have. Uh, I qualified for New York quite a few years oh, ago. Uh, that yep. was t- two thousand and eight. Uh, turned up and it was cancelled. That was when Hurricane oh. Katrina. Oh, sorry, Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Sandy hit. So I was devastated. I thought that's not it. I'm not meant to run an overseas marathon after training and. Even um, Deeks, uh, Robert DeCasella was on the plane on the way over. I got to chat to him. I was pumped for the marathon yeah. and then it was cancelled two days before. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a bit disappointed. But yeah. um, in the end, I just kept doing Melbourne marathons every year and I seem to enjoy that. So, yeah. But London would be the, what I'd want to do if I if I'd do another marathon, yeah. maybe yep. 2022. I think that might be realistic for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> All right, so our topic today is why is nutrition so confusing? Uh, And I think this is probably a topic that a lot of people have pondered at at various stages, whether they're Mm. an athlete or not. But obviously in this context, we're talking about athletes, runners, cyclists, triathletes and so on. Um, You're obviously someone who's worked in nutrition science research, as we've said. You also do a lot of communicating messages to the public. So you've sort of seen it from, from both perspectives. So do you have a sense yourself or have you sort of formed that sense of why you think nutrition is so confusing for people? Um, you're completely right. Nutrition is is confusing. You know, headlines change from day to day of what foods are good or, or bad for us. And there's a lot of merit for that. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all is it's really hard to do good quality nutrition research on human beings. I mean, good luck getting a group of people to follow a specified diet, be it a, be it a low carb, be it a be it a, a Mediterranean diet, be it a, a vegan diet, and follow it re- religiously for years so you can measure the big long-term outcomes such as cancer, heart disease, and so on. So it's hard to do the best quality research. So instead, we have to use a lot of observational research. Uh, so that's just observing groups of people, looking at their diet and their lifestyle and their habits and seeing what happens to them. That's useful, but it's not the, the best research. There's a lot of unknown unknowns in there. And when you're dealing with humans and diet, unless you're doing a controlled short-term lab feeding study, you have to actually ask them what they eat. And it's hard to get good information. We don't have really great tools to measure things. Scientists do the best they can. But despite all of that, we don't always have the best quality evidence. Also, and this is one thing I've really appreciated over my career, that we are incredibly individual as human beings. You know, Food does affect us individually. Just because the research says that if you eat a certain food, it's going to do X to your blood glucose level, depending on your gut microbiome, your blood glucose responses to a food can be different to somebody else purely just to pay, based upon your gut microbes. Um, that's just one of thousands of examples. So yes, while we may have good research, it may be different for an individual. And this is really the new area of personalized 
nutritionist coming in. And this doesn't mean it's getting individual advice. It's having some, some robust metrics that you can actually, uh, with some confidence, understand what's going on inside that person and what are the best dietary recommendations to make for them. So we have hard-to-do research, we have individual variation, and then we have conflicts of interest. Now, when I say that, people think, oh, you know, it's, it's big food, it's big sugar, it's big dairy funding research. Well, yes, they do that, but big avocado and big almond also fund research. Also, researchers are conflicted as well. So they may have a large public profile aligned to a particular diet paradigm. And of course, when conflicting research comes along, it's hard for them to change their public persona and viewpoints when they've got books and social media followings because they align themselves to a particular diet. You don't see that in other areas of research. You don't see uh, geneticists who are doing researches into obscure mutations uh, attaching the whole public profile to, to this little area of research that the public isn't that interested in. But nutrition has a high profile. It has a high degree of applicability to individuals. So all of those reasons together mean that it's very confusing to understand what is the truth. And the answer is there is no uh, truth. It's we have the best quality of research and the best evidence at the moment, but that can change over time. What I look at now as my career goes on is not what an individual study says, but what is the consistent narrative? What is a consistent theme in decades of research, not just some uh, recent uh, about face because of a couple of studies? And when I do that, the messages don't really change that much. Fruit and vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, mostly a plant-based diet consistently, consistently is linked with reduction in all major chronic diseases. It's one of the best dietary patterns. It doesn't have to be prescriptive, but that dietary theme is the common message in nutrition. It's a boring message to talk about unless you start bringing a new concept such as gut microbiome and, and all sorts of new sexy areas. But that hasn't changed very much. So it's really the noise around the edges that gets all of the attention in nutrition, particularly if we get an about face. Uh, if there was a research study published today that found out that eating vegetables increases your risk of cancer, that would be a headline study in every news bulletin around the world because it was so different to every other study. Now, it probably would be unlikely to be true, but you don't get headlines showing, once again, scientists show that eating vegetables is good for you. That doesn't get any clicks. You need to have conflicting research. You need a controversy and change to get interest from the public. And that's where some of the confusion comes from. So that's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but there's a lot of reasons why nutrition is confusing. But there is hope when you focus on the consistent themes that have not changed. Mm, spot on. And I think, you know, just as you were saying that, I was just thinking, you know, in the, the news media, like not in even in just science or nutrition, it's the same thing. You know, the things that make news are things that are controversial, things that are creating Absolutely. conflict and tension and um, drama and surprise and all these sorts of things. Like you don't hear on the, the top of the six o'clock news, you know, in news today, everyone had a nice day and not much happened. You know, yeah, that's a boring story. And the same with, you know, fruit and vegetables still are still good for you. You know, that's not going to make <laughs> not going to make good news. And it's not going to, yeah, give, as you said, get clicks, um, clicks and views and, and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, that's right. So what people pick up as confusion is just the the bit of noise around the edges that that creates that bit of color and movement, which makes great news copy for the day. And it generates clicks. 
but it's probably it's probably just you know spurious observations. Like I use that example of you know vegetables increasing risk of cancer. Maybe there are there are probably some studies that show that they are in the absolute absolute minority, and that'd be observational research, and they'd be discounted. But you know if you want to cherry pick, you can find those sorts of research uh, to support your particular viewpoint. Mm. And there's always the diet of the day, which changes every couple Absolutely. of years. Like like fashion trends, they need to keep reinventing themselves. You know, paleo became keto and it became carnivore. Now it's back to keto and it'll be something else in a few years' time. And it just keeps changing. And I've been in this business for many decades and I've seen the fads come and go. And I don't fight them too much. I just roll with them. I mean, hands up who's still doing a true keto diet or a true vegan diet because they, they watched, you know, game changes or, mm. you know, six months or a year later. They're not. They'll wait for the latest fad to come along. So yeah. I work with the fads and the trends rather than fight against them. Yeah. Because overall, most of those fatty diets, in the end, they have the commonalities. They generally promote eating more vegetables, uh, less highly processed food, less added sugar. And for the average Australian, not talking about athletes, but the average Australian, that's probably will be a step in the right direction for them. It's not sustainable and it fills their head with nonsense and pseudoscience. But in the end, it's probably a, a short transient uh, improvement in their diet, which is why they get health benefits from it. Mm. I, I always amused, I remember writing an article about this a while ago, that, you know, so many people went hardcore keto around, you know, 2010 when Twitter really exploded yes. with it. And then five years later, you know, and they were like, you know, all this stuff's poison, rah, rah, rah. And then five years later, all the things that they said were poison were all the things they were eating because they were on vegan. Yep. It's hilarious. It's, uh, <laughs> so you just, I just watch the trends mm. and observe and uh, look at the positives from it rather than and then try and debunk them all the time because they, yeah. they'll just keep coming and going. And so you just need a new branding, a new um, angle to hang it off. That's why yeah. you know, I use keto. But in two, 2000, late 1999 or 1990s, it was all Atkins diet. And nobody talks about Atkins diet anymore, but it was Atkins to low carb to keto and it'll be something else in a few years' time. Mm, absolutely all right and and this is probably a nice little segue i mean steph and i always have a little bit of a, a rant at the beginning of these podcasts something that sort of comes along or something we've heard or seen and and we just think oh don't get me started um clearly there's a lot of mis and misconceptions out there around nutrition uh, and as we've said you know probably more than any other sort of area of of health and, and well-being are there particular ones that you could think of or some really outrageous examples that uh, have come up like in the comments of your blog or your podcast or just things that you've come across otherwise that have really pushed your buttons? There's been a few over the years. First of all, an individual comment that still grates me. It was someone saying that the, the, the reason why uh, I, I had dietitians and the dietary guidelines promote grains is to cause blindness in the Australian population to help fund the medical school at the university I happened to work for. And that was just so outrageous. I've just gone, what sort of planet are you on? But then there's consistent ones that really get my, there's two of them. First of all is that the reason why we're all fat, sick and diabetic is because of the dietary guidelines. Yep. Now, for, if for anyone to say that, they're either know they're lying or they're completely ignorant to the fact that almost no one follows what the dietary guidelines say. Not what you think they say, what they actually say. First of all, we've got plenty of research to show that. But also, you just have to look around you. Mm. So clearly, that can, but that's still used as a springboard to promote whatever the new dietary paradigm is going to be. Mm. And I've even had some debates with people where I've shown them the research, and they then acknowledge that we're, that we're not following the dietary guidelines. And then with, within one breath... They just turn 180 degrees and say it's dietitian's fault 
for not getting people to follow the dietary guidelines. So what do you do in that situation? So that's one of my bugbears is just blaming any dietary guidelines. They are guidelines. They are a dietary theme and a dietary pattern, but they are not responsible for all of the, the chronic diseases and problems we have in a country like Australia. Mm. If anything, it's a lot of the confusion we get from people pushing their own particular agenda of what is healthy and not healthy based upon more field opinions and cherry-picking research rather than you know, consistent, good-quality research that's been done over decades, which is really what informs our dietary guidelines, which haven't changed very little over decades. Basically, they say eat fruit, vegetables, mostly plants, not a lot of junk. There you go. That's a nutrition degree yep. in a couple of words. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and I mean, I guess if, we, if anyone was to go out there and try and five those 5% of the population that do follow the dietary guidelines, I think you'd find that they're doing pretty well, pretty healthy. That's right. They'd be, they'd be thinking about what they eat uh, all the time. And that's one, one positive of people that do follow, you know, we'll call it fad diet They do concentrate more on what they're eating at that particular time. But generally those changes are not sustainable, you know, be it going on paleo, be it going on gluten-free or, or whatever. It's not a sustainable change to make. And eventually they, they regress back to the mean because we're human beings. And in the end, it's, it's easy to get Uber and, and eat junk food and, and be inactive in, because it's low resistance, then make a concerted effort to you know, advance, uh, prepare food and eat healthy all of the time. Yeah, for sure. Okay, and I guess on that topic of, you know, why nutrition is so confusing and, and those sort of mixed messages and what makes headlines that sort of does um, create a lot of noise in there. On your blog, um, probably the piece that's had by far the most reads ever is one that's titled Broccoli is Bad for You, like really toxic bad. Tell us a little bit about this article, what it means, um, and what reaction you had to it. So many years ago, I, I put this article together over many runs. I was always thinking about, how can I write an article that's, that I could demonize the most healthiest food I can think of? And, and I chose broccoli. You know, it is, it, there's nothing healthier than broccoli. I think it's, it's way up there. So what I thought I'd do is I'd write a blog post demonizing how unhealthy it is by, by cherry-picking and misrepresenting research. So I wrote the, first of all, the, the, the headline article, you know, if it, if, it, if it reads like a Valley Girl Speaks, it's probably not going to be credible science, you know, the word like appearing in there. And from the very first sentence, I said, this is a parody post to, to show you how you can misrepresent research to show that a healthy food is really bad for you. And then I launched into all of the issues with broccoli, all its goitrogens, and if you choose... Um, organic food that has issues with maybe um, even natural pesticides added to it. It has all these other problems with it. And then I launched into a reasonable piece of how this misinformation occurs. The post went viral. At the moment, it's had 800,000 reads. Wow. And what I learned from it was not about the post. It's how many people just read the headline mm. and then scroll down to the comments box to abuse you because they don't even read it. They don't even see the first sentence that says, this is just a parody post. Mm. So it went viral because of the headline. And what I learned from that and why I wouldn't do this sort of post again was that that creates noise and misinformation and confusion in, on social media, but just based on the headline because that's all people get. So imagine if my goal was to sell product and get traffic to my website. How to do that is to make noise and conflict and confusion. And I'll give you the best example possible of someone who does that. I'll only say his name once, Pete Evans. <laughs> End of story. But the, 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 the controversy gets traffic. So if your aim is to sell a book and to promote a fad diet, that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. So I did it just as a, as a bit of a, um, an experiment on broccoli and 
to this day, if you Google anything to do with broccoli and health, I own the number one spot on Google because of this <laughs> this one blog post. So uh, it was a lesson in communication and how even headlines of a few words can be powerful. And in that case, it really was a powerful headline. So if my intentions were um, mischievous, then you could do a lot with you know a little bit of science. Yeah. Absolutely. And I had a look the other day. It's had 256 comments, which I think most posts average sort of five to 10, but this one's had 256. And I had a quick scroll of the first five. I stopped after that because the, the theme continued. But the first five were basically all punters saying that you had no idea what you were talking about. Some of them even tried to suggest that broccoli really was bad for people and that it was talked about all these issues with gut health and things like this and that you were right, that broccoli truly is bad. Um, <laughs> What, what's your experience been with, you know, people out there that have these very unusual views on nutrition and health? So fortunately, I've been in the media and social media now for well over 15 years, and I've had my share of, of crazies who seek you out on email and, and telephone and, and social media. I, I just just sort of, you know, roll with it. I don't engage with them too much because sometimes there are views that are so extreme, you just don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And when I do, I normally, normally regret it because you just, you're in this situation that's you're dealing with a very unreasonable person. Um, so what I found on social media is with those sort of comments, if I do engage, it's normally very, uh, very limited amount and it's done more so to correct any, any seriously misleading information, not for that person's benefit, but for the re- other people's benefit that happen to read, read that. And generally it's your people that follow you on social media. If you can get to the stage where they actually respond for you rather than you have to get down into the weeds and, and you know argue and debate for pointless reasons with this sort of thing. So most of the time when you read comments, you've got someone that's come from a completely different um, reality to you and there's only so much you can do in trying to change the world. So I try and deal with the sensible middle group who appreciate a decent um, uh, argument and some decent quality science and then use that to inform their views rather than just try and convert everybody to your way of thinking. Yeah. Yep, definitely. And I remember you did a presentation at a Sports Dietitians Australia conference a few years ago, and I remember this quote that you said. It was along the lines of, uh, don't don't engage with, with trolls online because they'll only bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. Absolutely. That's it. And that's what I say to myself at times. It's really rare that happens. Uh, generally, the, the amount of science that, that occurs on my Facebook page and, and a blog, it generally scares most people away, not in terms of you know the, the crazies seek out other people. They don't generally come and you know, mm. seek out me. Because generally, I don't create controversy. I generally still stick with a fairly sensible middle ground of, you know, the research says this, you know, there's some positive aspects to this and some negative aspects, and here's sort of a sensible middle ground. And that seems to appeal to most people without creating too much controversy, mm. which... Keeps my mental health much much. Higher. <laughs> yeah, well, on, on the, uh, the the positive flip side to that, um, do you find that you get some really positive engagement with people and um, you know getting that that scientific message out there? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a consistent comment that I get from people that that, that validates you know, why I want to do this is that they appreciate I'm always giving a fairly balanced perspective rather than dogmatic view. I, I present the research in a very fair. Uh, scenario of what the positives and negatives say, what the likely conclusion is, what it likely means for you. But in the end, you can then take this information and do what you want with it. You can then apply it to your own particular life rather than you need to cut out gluten. It's going to be causing all these toxic problems for you, or you need to do this or you need to do that. Uh, Try and acknowledge that because we've got confusing 
uh, nutrition can be confusing and the research is not always settled. I try and present that in a fair situation that this is probably the best understanding we've got of this field at the moment. It may change, but based upon the whole field of nutrition and where most of the research points, this is probably where this little bit of this nugget, this, this new bit of controversy fits in the big scheme of things. And in the end, if I can talk about and promote something that's generally going to fit in with dietary patterns we know that are linked with good health, so mostly plant-based, mostly in foods close to the natural state, not a lot of highly processed foods, that's 80% of the battle. And people you know, can find ways to eat like that and it connects with them and they can sustain it, then that's a good thing. Yep. Absolutely. So I guess going a bit more into the sports nutrition um, field and thinking a bit more about um, sports nutrition messages that we provide athletes, um, often they can have their own, you know, preconceived ideas about, um, you know, about what is good good for health. And so when we then give them an alternative or an I guess, conflicting advice um, directed for the particular sport, um, they can find that quite confronting or they're sceptical of of that. Um, So um, do you you come across athletes getting confused about, you know, and getting mixed up with sports nutrition messages and then the public health message? Oh, absolutely, Steph. So this is, you know, I guess we're getting into a different area now, which is, which is great. I love talking about this. Uh, one of the things about sports nutrition, what I love, is you're generally dealing with a very, very motivated, uh, very healthy population who want to, to excel, which is, which is different from the general population. And so while we have these broad dietary guidelines, they really are for the more of a, you know, a base level, lowest common denominator of general health, you know, broadly reducing the risk of chronic disease. Whereas when we talk about athletes, we generally talk more about um, individual nutrients that has more utility and higher recommendations. I mean, protein is a good good example. You know, what protein needs, depending on what where you want to source it from, uh, about 1.6 grams per kilogram for endurance and strength-based athletes, potentially even higher in some situations. But if you go to the general population, it's much lower. So we rightly talk about individual nutrients. We have higher needs. But also the conflicting message comes in there because we, with sports people, they get their information, first of all, from popular press. They get it from broad eating, um, healthy eating guidelines, but they also get it from supplement companies. They get it from bros at the gym. Uh, they also uh, get it from you know, individual uh, athletes who are doing good things that they see on social media and, and tribes. So be it, uh, be it a, a vegan, be it keto, be it any new sort of dietary approach that has advocates in sports nutrition that further confounds the messages. So they get it even worse. They're getting it from all different angles for someone that probably is already reasonably healthy to start with. So it's distilling all of that and trying to come up with a consistent message that, that connects with them is obviously the challenge that you both face as well, dealing at the coal face mm-hmm. with athletes. And that's where I see that the difference lies. Mm-hmm. And I know you probably find the same, Steph. Like I know in like private practice working, particularly, uh, I just think like working with some teenage clients, like kids in high school that um, have very high energy needs. Like they're doing like swimming before school and then you know running training or triathlon training after school or something like that. Enormous energy needs, and so you're trying to get them to eat more and more and more, and you're having to add in foods that pack in calories in a small volume of food because it's just not practical mm-hmm. to eat that volume of food. And so you then you're suggesting that they have things like you know flavored milks, and then the parents are just like, 
but that's got sugar in it. Mm. How can they eat that? You know, because, yeah, as you said, Tim, that they're taking a message, which is the, the general dietary guidelines, which are designed for people that are, you know, uh, sort of middle-aged adults, relatively sedentary, high risk of chronic disease. Um, you know, that's the, what the guidelines are designed for. But for a 16-year-old who's, you know, trying to become an elite athlete, they need to do something different to the dietary guidelines. And, and I think people get Absolutely. confused with that sometimes. And and they can well, use the word, they can get away with it. I mean, a great example is sumo wrestlers. When they're wrestling, I mean, these are obese fat guys, but mm. they are incredibly fit and metabolically healthy. It's when they retire that all of the problems happen because there's a redistribution of their body fat. It goes from subcutaneous to visceral. And that's when the metabolic disease gets in. But with athletes, it's perfectly fine to talk about sugary snacks and things at times because it can be convenient. Mm. Um, a talk I went to by Steve Monaghetti some years ago uh, illustrated this really well. He said he has the best diet in the world he can recommend to anyone and it only involves two steps. The first step is you can fill your fridge with as much junk food as you want. You can have chocolate, you can have ice cream, you can have soft drink, you can eat all you want. That's step one. Step two is run 200 kilometers a week. Now, it's a little bit flippant, of course, there's other nutritional needs, but it shows that when you've got a high energy demands, then just getting in the, the right volume of food. And in sports nutrition, we don't call it food, we call it fuel as well. And that's a really good analogy. So all of the, the, the broad base of healthy eating guidelines are still there. But there's a lot of room to individualize and move outside those guidelines. It's perfectly appropriate for, for an athlete that really will have very little adverse consequences because they are active and that has so many benefits with it. So that can, that can be a challenge, obviously, that you're dealing with as well um, with those sorts of messages. Yeah. And Steph, do you come across that as well? I do. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, your example there, Alan, with, um, with the youth needing more energy and trying to um, you know, give them like, especially teenage males and their swimmers, particularly the energy requirements are through the roof. And if we're trying to stick to, yeah, you know, wholesome whole grain food, um, and just get that in, it's, it's just impossible. They've got school, you know, they need those convenient options and they're burning it. Um, so, um, yeah, definitely have, um, yeah, those conflicting messages there. Um, are there any others particularly that you come across, Tim, that um, uh, that you find athletes get particularly confused with, with our general health messages? Uh, so it's probably also where they're getting the information from. Mm -hmm. And look, I'll use, I'll, you touched on this before, the, the example of Game Changers last year, that net Netflix docker. Yep. Uh, that created so much noise uh, for a period of time that I'm sure that had a lot of athletes questioning mm. if they should be changing their diet to a vegan yeah. diet. So I'm not going to turn this into a critique of, of yeah. those sorts of entertainment shows. I'm not going to call it science in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But but these fads and trends come along and further confuse things because on its surface, it seems like this has got to be you know good, credible science because they then call into question certain aspects of dietary guidelines. They call into question conflicts of, of interest in particularly um, recommending certain foods. So because people are getting in on this latest trend or fad, then that just adds more noise for them. So probably the, the biggest one is just all of those things acting together mm. to affect how an individual interprets uh, what advice is appropriate for them. And in the end, they can test it out on the track or in the pool to see if it's improving their performance. Uh, and in the end, if they're, it's, they're finding it's improving it, well, it's probably going to reinforce that. But if it's not, that's when they need to seek out some professional advice for the, for the changes to make that might help them. 
that's where you guys come in. Yep. Um, and as a as a runner yourself, um, obviously you will see your fellow colleagues and and runners um, probably um, practice some some common perhaps nutrition mistakes. Uh, so, what are the ones you tend to find uh, your your peers falling into yeah. or or not doing terribly well in? So, this is one I've seen way too many times, and it still astounds me that people do this. Uh, they don't practice race day nutrition <laughs> in their training. So, obviously, we're talking about endurance athletes here. Yeah. But the amount of people I've seen just destroy themselves in their first major endurance event from trying things that clearly probably would unlikely work for them, like gee, I'll take some dried fruit on a uh, on a marathon and see how that goes <laughs> in my gut uh, mid-run. Or I'll, uh, I'll do the 100K Oxfam and I'll just eat nuts because that's an energy food. <laughs> so sometimes, maybe those things work for some people, mm-hmm. but it's a lot of times it, it doesn't end well. So you need to practice your race day nutrition in training. And I see a lot of people don't, don't do that. Even race morning, if you're not used to a routine of being up for a couple of hours before you compete mm-hmm. in working out how you get in your nutrition mm. and how you're going to manage all of that. And if you haven't done that in training, then that could really put you behind the eight ball when uh, it's the critical event of two, three, four, five hours rolls around and you find yourself behind the pack because you haven't practiced properly and just suffering from it on the course. So that that's a big one that I see. Oh, that's your pet peeve, Steph. Yeah, yeah. Or, and the other one that I have a pet peeve about is... Um, anecdotes from professionals um so i I work in a um a running store um and there's a particular gel that's marketed very well yep um and the amount of people that come in and they have no idea but they've just seen oh well you know this this runner that's run sub two hours like you know and this is what they say about that gel so you know obviously it's true (laughs) Um, and they spend, you know, they're expensive, but that's, they don't, they don't care if they've just, they've seen it on TV or they've seen the advertisements or their friends are taking it. Um, and, uh, that is, that is a big pet peeve. (laughs) (laughs) If they can be, if you have a gel habit, they can be quite expensive or you can go on the internet and make your own or, or do it i do i've tried all of the different snakes available and i found one particular brand that's really soft and you can actually chew it when you're running and that's what i live off just yep. just snakes yep. <laughs> when i do do distance running so yeah. it's, a, it's a much cheaper yep. cheaper way of getting it yeah what about you alan what, what's your uh, good question so i think many. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've had a few already on the podcast these sort of don't get me started points but um i think one of the other ones because a lot of my uh, research is in hydration is people sort of doing testing and uh, we've talked about this on the podcast already done testing and you know worked out their sweat rate and then said that's my rate like it's this fixed number that never changes um and then just apply that to everything that they do mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. you see that a lot um w- one funny story talking about sort of confusion in, in nutrition i'll never forget this guy um i saw in the clinic once and he was a he was a lightweight rower actually but he you know Similar to the example we're talking about before, you know, young guy, massive calorie needs, uh, and trying to get him to eat enough was the the real challenge. And um, he came in and he said the word chocolate milk, I reckon about 15 times in the first 20 minutes of the appointment. Like it was chocolate milk this and chocolate milk that and whatever. And, and I couldn't help myself about 20 minutes in. I sort of leant over and I'm like, 
you do realize that you can have like other flavors of milk. Like it doesn't have to be chocolate. You can have strawberry or banana or whatever you vanilla. And his mind was blown. He's looking at me like, really? I can have like pink milk as well. And I said, the nutrition profile is the same. It's just a different color and a different. He's like, oh my god! And he came back about a month later, and he's like, I've been trying all these different flavors of milk. This is great. And I was like, oh, geez, yeah. The things you find out and, yeah, that the misconceptions that people have is just mm. incredible sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, yep. that was probably the, the most amusing one that I've come across for That's sure. That's a good one. A good yeah. One. <laughs> um, so what things, Tim, have you learnt along the way with your running experience rather than science? Ah, excellent question, Steph. So I'll, I'll use, obviously, um, uh, with marathon running, when I did my first one, uh, I, I carbo-loaded because that's what, you know, mm -hmm. good research base behind and that's a fairly standard advice in, in the nutrition world. So I did all the, you know, pretty intense protocol of three or four days, just made myself sick on white bread and muffins and jam and things. Mm -hmm. And come race day, I was, I'd gained about three kilograms in weight from, from the, the, the glycogen and water that mm -hmm. I took on. So I had so much, I felt bloated and heavy because I was, I was heavier mm. and full. And it was a really uncomfortable feeling. Uh, about halfway through the marathon, I, I sort of worked through all of that and I was feeling much better, but it was really, it wasn't pleasant. Mm -hmm. And then as the science behind carbo loading has changed, we, we, that's sort of not the protocol that's recommended as much now. It's pretty much just, you know, eat normally, you know, eat some more carbohydrates, pull off, you know, pull back on the training and that can be enough. So I've learned that I don't need to carbo load. After years of running, my body can adapt pretty well to a bit of fat ad adaptation. I don't need to, to do that as much. Mm -hmm. So coming into a marathon, I pretty much just eat normally. I just don't run for a couple of days or just have some light running, just eat some bigger meals and that's all. So because carbo lighting just made me feel horrible mm. and I didn't perform as well, even though the theory was that that's the way to do it. But sports nutrition recommendations have obviously changed a bit for that mm. over the years. The initial carbo lighting protocol probably isn't used as much now. It's pretty much just more sensible eating mm -hmm. closer to the race. So that was, that was great to try it in theory to know it doesn't work for me and then finding a middle ground that, that was much better. But another pet peeve, people that carbo-load for half marathons, that's a, a pet mm. peeve there. Mm -hmm. you, d you don't need to carbo-load mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. those sorts of events. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Or say they carbo-load when they have go to the bakery or... <laughs> that's a cycling one. Yep. Halfway through the ride, yep. <laughs> yeah. So for the runners, cyclists and triathletes out there, just sort of bring this to a bit of a, a conclusion, Tim. Uh, you know, we've talked about the fact that there is all of this confusion out there. There's all these mixed messages out there. Any tips from your perspective on how people can sort of figure their way through all of that and, and try and come up with, with something sensible? Yeah, well, first of all, that I always acknowledge that what makes <clears throat> nutrition confusing and conflicting is because we are all individuals. Food does affect us at an individual level. No matter what the science says, there's certain foods will affect you differently. So it's, so it's okay to, to experiment and try things around the edges for what works for you. So there's things I could not eat on a race day that other people could. No matter what the science says, that eating oats is best thing for you mm. because it's slow release energy. I wouldn't make it, you know, 100 meters. I'd be mm. doubled over in pain. Mm. So you've got the theory, you've got the advice, but you've got what works for you. So acknowledge that your own individual needs. But also when it comes to broad advice, you know, generally the experts, not generally, the experts get it right far more times than they get it wrong. Mm. 
So be cautious of where you get your information. Look for consistent, credible messages coming from sensible voices in the nutrition and sports nutrition world. And when you do delve into research, either read it yourself or you see people citing it, look for evidence that has been cited as review articles or even things called meta-analyses, which get all of the evidence together, rather than just single individual cherry-pick studies. Look for recommendations that are based upon quite a lot of research. And in that, that will be uh, review papers. And in any advice, is it is it a consistent piece of advice that you read across websites and professionals talk about? And does it broadly fit in with, with recommendations? And we talk about healthy eating recommendations, you know, fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, legumes, mostly plant-based, and some animal foods if you choose to. For sports nutrition, it's going to be focusing on uh, carbohydrates and protein as well and, and good food sources of those. And everything else outside of that would be just playing around the edges. And although it may seem like the biggest gains in sports performance come from the, the, the latest supplement and optimizing your macronutrient ratios, the biggest gains in sports nutrition for the, for the average athlete is just getting the core basics of your food and nutrition right. Mm. And then the one supplement you do need to take is BHW, that's called bloody hard work, and that will get you your <laughs> biggest gains, bar none. Everything else around that is just the one and two percenters. Consistency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and then any final tips um, for people out there around developing and refining your BS detector? So when information comes around and you're trying to sort of look at it and think, oh, you know, is this something that's worth my time or not? Any tips there? Okay, so you can, first of all, the, the best sources to go to, you know, sports dietitians, you know, the website, uh, people that are sports dietitians, uh, people that have, that have credible profiles that are doing, doing you know, good work in nutrition communi- communication space, uh, particularly when it's free from conflict, if they're not additionally selling you a particular book or dietary paradigm that they've aligned themselves to, that can be, give you a bit more confidence that you're getting some credible information. Um, but overall, does it does it pass the pub test? You know, is it promising the world? Is it promising these huge mm. gains and performance improvements that deviates from you know broad healthy eating guidelines? And if it is, it's probably going to be BS. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, well said. All right, it's time for the bonus round. Bonus round, okay. So this is where our listeners get to learn a little bit more about you, Tim, um, in a fun way. So. If you could do anything besides what you're doing now, although it sounds like you're really enjoying what you're doing now, um, what would it be? I would be an astronomer. Uh, the idea of just sitting there with a telescope peering off into the universe and galaxies every night is just would blow my mind. So do you do like, that seriously? already? Like do you already have your telescope? And I, do, I don't have a telescope. Yeah. But I'm just enthralled by all yeah. those sorts of docos. And I've always thought if I had my time again, I probably would seriously yeah. consider studying astronomy. Yeah. It just fascinates me. Yeah, yeah. The universe. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. There you go. Nothing at all, and nothing at all to do with, with nutrition. nutrition. I don't think there's, I don't That's think there's good. online debate, or probably debates, but it's just <laughs> dealing with physicists rather than just the general public getting involved. It's just, a, you know, a nice, nice science to be involved with. So yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's one thing you'd still like to accomplish in your career? Something I've always wanted to do to be a. TV presenter on on a science show, probably something like Catalyst. I would love to do that type of media, so TV presenting role. Yeah, yeah. I've done loads of media in other formats yeah. and, and been interviewed on TV, but I'd love to do a, a TV yeah. presenter science role. Yeah. That would be my dream job. Yeah. Science comms at a at a much higher level. Yeah. 
And mm. one thing about life or nutrition that you wish you realized earlier in your life? To not hold on to the evidence too tightly, mm. to know that, that evidence changes. We don't always have the best evidence and people at an individual level can be different to what the research says. So don't hold on to that as tightly. You, obviously you need it to be credible and to come from a solid base. Otherwise you're just going with all the crazies on the internet, mm-hmm. but to not hold on to things as tightly and acknowledge individual variation, particularly in nutrition. So that would have been good to acknowledge many years ago, but I'm in a happy place now that that's where I'm, I come from. And that's how I communicate. I acknowledge that we all have different, different views and different opinions and there's room for some of it. Yeah. Uh, I'll happily call out the crazy when I, when I see it. Yeah. But overall, I acknowledge that there's a bit of room to move in what our best diet is. And there is no one best diet. You know, I always talk about mostly plant-based and animal foods if you choose to, because I'm not aligned to any paradigm. Mm -hmm. I'm not aligned to any particular camp. I like being in the sensible center. There's less crazy people there. Mm -hmm. That's where I belong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What's your favorite post-run beverage? So banana-flavoured whey protein concentrate in milk. I'm just addicted to it. There you go. I love it. <laughs> well, Very specific. I'm glad you said banana-flavoured, not chocolate-flavoured. Like... No, it has to be, has to be banana-flavoured. That's, that's the best performance-enhancing supplement there is, banana-flavoured. <laughs> there you go. You do realise, Tim, that you can have caramel. You'll still get the same benefit. I've tried the other the flavours, but I keep going back to, go on, to banana-flavoured. Yeah. Banana, yeah. Um, hmm. Any places or events on your running bucket list? So probably London Marathon would be the one place I'd like to, I'd like to go to. Uh, I've never been done a lot of trails, but I, I think I'd like to get into some more of those. So. Yeah, yep, yep, stunning so places. So in that case, it's anywhere in nature. You can go anywhere in the world and it'd be incredible Amazing. to be out there. Yep. Yeah, yep. into your world, Steph. Um, and who is someone you've always wanted to meet and why? Good one. So this may not surprise you coming from a science nerd, uh, Carl Krzyzielinski. He's just the, the ultimate science communicator. He has so much knowledge. He's so humble in how he talks about things and he's so engaging. So, Dr. Um, Carl. Dr. Carl. Dr. Yeah, Carl. there you go. Awesome. <laughs> I, many years ago, he actually called me up for some help with a story. He said, oh, hi, Tim, it's Dr. Carl Krzyzielinski. And I've just gone, Dr. Carl! <laughs> I was totally starstruck. So. <laughs> And he was such a good bloke. I, I just gave him some help with a story. And about a couple of months later, a copy of his book came out oh. and with, with me as an acknowledgement for a small story I helped wow. him with. So that just shows That's he's good. a very he's a very humble, giving guy and how he communicates his science. So he's quite genuine. So, yeah, I'd like to, I'd love to meet yeah. him one day and yeah. catch up with him. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tim. It's been, been real fun to, to chat with you um, around, a, obviously, a topic that you've had a lot of experience and um, yeah, I think it's, it's great information for all our listeners to try and um, when they're sifting through information and um, yeah, best of luck with, with all the stuff that you're doing in the media and, and the podcast so people can check out Thinking Nutrition, um, both your blog and the podcast, um, very much recommend those and particularly yeah. you cover a lot of stuff around uh, particularly the nutrition and health angle um, but a little bit in, in sports nutrition as well. So yes. yeah, thanks so much for your time, Tim. Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you both and it's great to see you guys out podcasting as well. You've had some great guests as well. I mean, starting with Louise Burke, you, can, <laughs> you can't go wrong with that as a podcast. So that was yes. fascinating to listen to her and her insight. There's, there's no one better in sports nutrition than Louise. Yeah. So well done on the work you're doing thank you awesome thank you awesome so good to have tim um with us very very lucky um to get his experience of you know being 
deacon for 16 years in the area of research. Um, and he has a huge amount of experience in communications and um, he really knows how to get the audience's attention. I, I, when you mentioned about the broccoli, like that's, yeah, one of the first things I remember about Tim as well is that headline. Um, so go check that out if, if people haven't read that um, article. It's a great one. Um, I guess the, the main messages from today is that actually nutrition can be confusing and um, conflicting and um, don't feel um, that you're silly if, if that's how you feel with nutrition because we all get confused about it. it, it it's um, one of those topics that Tim said, you know, is just it's um, applicable to everyone um, and research is always changing. So it actually always will be getting confusing messages um, and be aware that there is individual variation. So even when we have a lot of well-controlled and, and good quality studies, um, it, it, we are still individual. So we still have to, you know, specify that um, data and that information to, to ourselves as well. And what we might get from that study may actually not be um, great for us necessarily, but we can use that as um, some good um, background advice and, and, and evidence to start with. Um, and then I, I would say, you know, just some resources that you, you could use um, if you are getting um, confused with nutrition. I, and if it's in sports, like I would say Sports Dietitians Australia is, is, a, is a great resource. They've, we've got a good website up there. And, um, and if you do want to seek out the help of a sports dietitian, you can do that there. Um, you know, obviously Tim's um, blog and podcast is fantastic and particularly with general health messages as well, um, but he also talks about sports there. Um, obviously listening to Alan and myself, you know, <laughs> good quality <laughs> advice there. It's two um, plugs in one episode. Two plugs. <laughs> um, you know, universities as well, you can find out information from. Um, what about, what else, Alan, do you want to add from, from what we've learned today? Yeah, I, I guess they're probably the main things. Um, uh, what will I add? I, I think, yeah, as Tim said, um, well, yeah, as you said then, you know, studies report the average is the mean uh, value usually um, rather than the, the individual variance. Um, they're getting better at reporting the individual variance, but if you just read an abstract of a paper, which for a lot of people that's all they have access to, generally you only see the mean, so the average of all the people joined together. Um, and the conclusions are usually based on that average as well. So you can have, you know, two people who did really well for, what you know, let's say caffeine as an example, two people improve, two people do worse, and one person stays the same. So the average would be no change. Yeah. Um, and so you make that conclusion and then everyone goes out and takes caffeine, uh, you know, doesn't take caffeine, two people have missed out on something that's potentially beneficial for them, uh, and two people have dodged a bullet. Um, because that was going to make them significantly worse. So, yeah, there, there is that individual uh, variability between people. And I think the, the key message there is, as Tim said, is experiment. Try things for yourself in training. Don't just rock up to a race and do something because it was written in a paper or you read it on a blog or something like that because you, there's a good chance it'll go pear-shaped for you. I mean, it may not, and you might be lucky, Um but I guess, yeah, don't complain if it does go pear-shaped because, um, yeah, 
consider this warning, I suppose, that uh, you really should go out there and uh, make sure you practice, your, particularly your race day stuff in training is uh, one of the, the biggest take-home messages and, and one of the things that I guess us sports dietitians are always harping on about. And then I guess the other one there is, as Tim said, is you having that BS detector. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if, if something sounds too good to be true, mm-hmm. it probably is. Uh, well. If you see a headline, read beyond the headline because mm-hmm. the reality may be completely different to what you read in the headline as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and look for um, the same message coming from multiple credible sources um, mm-hmm. rather than just one person saying it um, is probably a sure sign that you're onto something that's probably not as as bsy yeah yeah good one yeah um yeah so uh hopefully that that's helped some of the listeners with why nutrition can be so confusing and um what to um what tools you can use to try and make it less confusing i guess um uh so with with having tim we obviously always like to have um then an athlete's perspective on that so um alan who have we been lucky enough to get for for that episode so episode 6b yeah so 6b we've got uh chris ord so some of you in the trail running scene may know chris he's pretty well known in that field um so i met chris uh, quite a long time ago he's a um a, he's been lots of things he's worn many hats in um in running circles he's been a journalist mm. uh, he's been a, an event manager and director he's worked in race management and that side of things uh he's done a, a fair bit of you know competing as a runner himself Mm. um so he sort of looked at this from from multiple different angles in terms of the media angle in terms of you know running events and getting sponsorship for different food products and things like that uh, and also just seeing you know what all the different competitors in the race are doing or not doing uh, and then his own personal experience as a runner so i thought he was a, a fantastic person to get on to get this sort of message from all of those different angles He's worked in magazine editing as well, so yeah, he would have. Yeah, come yeah, he, he founded Trail Run magazine yeah, here exactly. in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he'll be, yeah, he'll be a fantastic person to um to chat to. So we're very lucky to have him. Um, so uh, the in terms of reaching out to us, we'd love to, as um we've said in in the introduction for today's session, we'd love to have more questions. Um, if you've got any. Um, please post them on our social media. So we have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and we are on all um, platforms for our podcasts. So um, Spotify, Podbean. Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. And Apple Podcasts, yep. Um, And, yeah, also, yeah, feel free to give us a rating, tell us what you like or don't like about the show um and yeah we just want to improve it and it's really you know alan and i having a bit of fun on here but it's mainly to help educate everyone in in the theme of sports nutrition yep absolutely well said steph all right well i think that's probably all we need to talk about today i think it's time we we wrap up and we'll be back again next week with our interview with chris ord Woohoo! all right see you later guys Bye.